Well, good morning again. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Joel Drinkpole. Um, he comes to us from Front Porch Ministries down in San Luis Obispo, and he's one of our mission partners. And um, he's leading an amazing college ministry down there. And it's not just for college students, but um, it's a great outreach to the community as well. So um, give him your full attention and a warm welcome this morning. Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> Well, it's great to, it is great to be back here. Uh, this, I think this is my third time getting to do this, and it's one of uh, my favorite things that I get to do is just open up the Word of God uh, with the church. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your support of um, the mission of Front Porch. If you don't know anything about Front Porch, what we're trying to do at Front Porch is to teach college students what it means to be the church on a daily basis. So the cool thing about Front Porch is that we're not just with the students one day a week or two days a week or three days a week. We are with them literally every day. They hang out at Front Porch. Um, And so we have hundreds and hundreds of students who come through the facility every day, and we get to see them at their highs, and we get to see them at their lows, and we get to see everything in between. And it's just an honor to be able to be with them and commit to sharing life with them. So thank you for your support. It's a a real honor to get to do it. Um, One of the things about working at a place like front porch is it's very distracting because we we base our ministry or we don't base it off this but it's a kind of a platform for how we do our ministry is we have a coffee shop uh that we give free coffee to students who come in and they study and um so there's always a lot going on at front porch you could say and yet i it still has to be a place where i get work done where um i make phone calls and talk to donors and do budgets and write sermons and things like that and it's very distracting to get any sort of work done there because there's constant activity. There's things always surrounding me. Um, I was sharing with the, the 830 service that uh, it's not a place that I would have studied. Um, and so it's ironic that now I'm providing this space for students to come and study, and it's the least likely of places as a college student that I would have ever come to study. When I was a student at Fuller Seminary, there's this beautiful new uh, three-story library there that has just these beautiful views. It's a very modern building, um, very different from the old library at Fuller Seminary. And the I would always go to the old library. I couldn't study in the new library just because there's, be- there's windows everywhere. There's distractions everywhere. And so the old library has two basements. Uh, there's the first basement, and then there's the second basement where they keep the books that, that people rarely go to get. And I would find my little spot in the corner of this second basement, and that would be where I got my studying done. That would be where I got my papers written um, because I, I struggle to focus when there's distractions. And I don't know if you're like that, but that's how I am. And I think a lot of times when we have so many things going on around us, what that does is it can blind us to some things that are pretty important. And instead, we focus on these things, all these circumstances which are right in our face, and we think that they're the biggest and most important things, and we might be missing out on something that's incredibly profound and hopeful that's right in front of us but we miss out on it because we are blinded. This morning, we are going to continue the series that you've been looking through uh, or going through called Heroes. And we are going to look at a hero, actually one of my favorite heroes. Um, Before Sean left, he gave me the option of this one, or I I forget what the other one was, but I I quickly chose this one uh, because Ruth is one of my favorites. One of the things about the Old Testament and the New Testament for that matter. It was written in a day and age, uh, a male-dominated society, um, a very much male-dominated society where women just didn't have a voice at all. Um, And so the fact that we have this book preserved, 
that is all about a woman and it is named after a woman, I think is an amazing, amazing thing. And it is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. So we are going to look at the very beginning of it this morning. We are going to look at the first 18 verses. And my hope is that it just whets your appetite and that you want to just dive into Ruth and look at the rest of Ruth. And it's a really easy book to dive into. It's only four pages long, at least in my Bible. It might be, I have really small print too. So if you have a larger print Bible, it's going to be a little longer, but it's only four pages in my Bible. You could read that in an hour um, or less. Uh, and so I encourage you to, to do that this week sometime. Um, all right, so we're going to dive in and we're going to go verse by verse through the first 18 verses. Does that sound good? Yes. All right, so we're going to start in verse 1. And this is how it begins. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And we're going to stop. And some of you are thinking, this is going to be a long, long morning <laughs> if we go through this word by word. But these are really important words. So during the days when the judges ruled, so the, so the book of Ruth falls at this very interesting time in the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible, does anyone know what they're called? They have a couple different names. The law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, it's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in these first five books, God and the Israelites are becoming, uh, you could say they are getting to know one another. Um, and the Israelites throughout the, the Pentateuch claim God, uh, Yahweh, that is the Israelite name for God, as their own. And it is this uh, beautiful story of how they intersect with one another. And God makes promises to them in the Pentateuch. And one of the promises is that they are going to have a land that they can call their own and that they can go to. So at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Moses is leading the Israelites and they're just about to, to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. And Moses gives this great speech. And then what happens to Moses after he gives this great final speech in Deuteronomy before he can cross into the promised land? He dies. Um, and so Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. But then the next book right after Deuteronomy is, anyone know? Joshua. So Joshua comes next. And in the book of Joshua, Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. But as they get there, it's supposed to be this beautiful land, land flowing with milk and honey. And all of a sudden turmoil happens and, and things begin to fall apart very quickly for the Israelites. The next book after Joshua is, any guesses based on our text? Judges is the next book. And if you want to read a messed up book in the Bible, I, I challenge you this week to read Judges. It'll take you a little bit longer to read. It won't be as quick a read. It'll, it's 20 chapters or so. But Judges is messed up. Things, uh, if they were falling apart in Joshua, now they, is just, they've lost it. There is no order in Israel. People are doing, the, one of the phrases that continually repeats itself during, this, uh, during Judges is that people did whatever they wanted, whatever they saw fit. And so there was tragedy and sorrow because of the murder, because of the immorality, because of the abuse. People did whatever they wanted in the land and they were not held accountable for it. There was social and religious chaos and the people of Israel were living in fear about what was going on around them all the time. Then it says, so during the days when the judges ruled, there was what in the land? Famine. What does famine mean? There is no food. One of the things that causes famine is what we are experiencing right now in California, which is what? Drought. We are nowhere near Famine. Even though the drought is severe, we are nowhere near famine. There's still famine that exists in the world today, but so often we are uh, sheltered from it because of where 
we live and because of the provisions that we have here. World Vision, an organization, does a great job of making people aware of famine, especially with the images that I I so often see them present, whether it's on TV or on the internet or wherever. Um, But you will see a young child and you will see this child's stomach bloated and you will see every single bone in this child's body and you will see the skin just gripping that bone as tight as it can. And that child is more than likely going to die because there is no food. That is what famine means. Famine means death. People are going to die. And so the beginning of Ruth begins during the days when the judges ruled there was famine in the land. And then it continues. It says this. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malhon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and they settled there. So the text reads that this man Elimelech leaves Bethlehem, a city that we are pretty familiar with because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so this man Elimelech lives in Bethlehem and the people in the 830 service actually knew this. Let's see if anyone knows this here. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? House of bread. So it's ironic that Bethlehem means house of bread and yet there's no bread. There's famine. The reason that Bethlehem was called the house, the reason that it's got its name House of Bread is because it, lit, it, was, it was situated in a very fertile part of Israel. It lied six miles to the south of Jerusalem on the central mountain range that runs up and down Israel. And so in this area, it was known for things growing such as barley and wheat and grapes and almonds and all sorts of these crops that people would farm there. So Elimelech, who is more than likely a farmer of one of these crops, realizes that there's no food. There's nothing that he can do. And so he needs to do something. And so it says that he gets up with his wife, Naomi, and their two kids, and they are going to go to where? Where does the text say they're going to go? To Moab. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little bit of a, a geography lesson on Israel. So pretend that this, we are a map now, um, and I am north, and those doors back there are south, and this, you guys over here are going to be west, and you guys over here are going to be east. And right in the middle from me to the doors is the Jordan River Valley, but the Dead Sea would lie right here. So up here, you'd have Jerusalem, probably somewhere around here, and six miles to the south, you would have Bethlehem up on the hillside. Then you'd have this great big valley, the Dead Sea right here, and then a little bit more valley, and then it'd come up. And thousands of feet above the Dead Sea, there's this very fertile plateau. It's 25 miles long, and it is called Moab. And it is very fertile. And so people over here in Bethlehem during this time could more than likely look across where they are experiencing extreme famine. And they could look across and they could see the hills. And those hills are green. And they are fertile. So Elimelech knows this. He sees this. And he's like, well, I got to do something about this. And not everyone was doing this. But he said, we're going to do this. We're going to get up and we're going to go to Moab. Now, the problem was that Moab was not a place that you would go as an Israelite. They did not get along. They did not like each other at all. Uh, The Moabites had this long history of just 
of disagreeing on so many different levels. Um, one simple illustration of how they disagreed is they worshiped different gods. So the Moabites worshiped a completely different god, and one of the things that they did is they sacrificed their children to that god. So, so Elimelech is taking his wife Naomi and their two boys, and where are they going? They're going to Moab, where they sacrifice children. So this is not a good place to be going. One other example of why they don't get along comes from Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. It says this, When the Israelites lived at Shittim, the people made themselves impure by having illicit sex with Moabite women. The Moabite women invited the people to the sacrifices for their God. So the people ate a meal and they worshipped their God. Israel became attached to the Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry at the Israelites. So what do you think? So, so essentially what happens is the Israelite men get seduced into having uh, sex with the Moabite women. To the, and it's this worshipful thing to the God of the Moabites. What do you think the Israelite women thought of Moab? Not big fans. So they were against going there. They were probably against marrying Moabites. They're against associating with them in any way. But this is where they are headed. And they are headed there to look for food. They are in a hopeless situation. And they are looking for any sliver of hope that they can hold on to. They're leaving family. They're leaving friends. They're leaving familiarity to find a place to farm and settle. And it's going to be a frightening place that they are headed to. Verse 3. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband died. Then only she was left along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. So they get there in this incredibly uh, desperate and horrific place. And all of a sudden, the person who had taken them there, the head of the household, which was extremely important in that day and age, dies. Well, at least, at least Naomi has her two sons because as a widow now, which she was now, you you would rely on the children that you had produced and the children that they could produce to provide for you. So her boys marry. They marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And it says in the text about 10 years go by. What's interesting here is that 10 years have gone by and what hasn't happened yet? What does the text say hasn't happened yet? or we're not made aware of. There's no children. Ten years have gone by, and we aren't made aware of any children that that Naomi's kids have had with these two Moabite women. In the Old Testament, there's another story of two people who ten years go by, and they haven't had children. Does anyone know who that is? Abraham and Sarah. So this ten years is kind of a, a benchmark for, I mean, if you haven't had kids after ten years, it's not looking like it's going to happen. Verse 5. Let's see if things can get any better. But both of the sons, Malhon and Chilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Can you imagine what Naomi's going through in this, this moment? The one who had t- her husband, who she had loved and committed to, is now dead. Her two children that she was going to rely on um, to provide for her or, and to produce grandchildren are now dead. And she, in her mind, is left with nothing. She, she sees that she's alone in a foreign land and that all hope is lost and there's no chance of happiness. 
She's at a total loss. She's lost her family. She's even lost her identity. The text reads that only the woman was left. It doesn't say only Naomi was left. It says only the woman was left. Later in the text, Naomi, when she gets back to Bethlehem, she, the people are saying, Naomi, Naomi. And she says, stop calling me Naomi. That's not my name. She, she, her identity was wrapped up as it was in that day and age, was wrapped up in her husband and her children. And now all of that is gone. She has lost her identity. She's a childless widow, which was the worst possible fate for an Israelite woman. She lacks protection. She's past the point of childbearing. She's poor. She has no social status. She's a part of a group of society that, that they just didn't know what to do with, which included women, orphans, and prostitutes. Interesting. Who did Jesus hang out a lot with? <laughs> she has no rights. Naomi has lost hope. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt hopeless? Where you begin to ask yourself, what else could go wrong? Where you think to yourself, there's nothing left. What's the point of this at all? Verse 6. Then she arose along with her daughters-in-law to return from the field of Moab because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi gets word again that there's food in Bethlehem. Whatever was causing the drought has now stopped and there is food growing again in Bethlehem. The rains have begun to fall or the locusts have left. Who knows what was causing it? But the house of bread is once again full of bread. And she really doesn't have any other choice to return. There's nothing for her in Moab. So at the very least, she'll return to, to live out the remainder of her days back in Bethlehem and live with a family member or a friend and just try, try to just sit there and live out the rest of her life. She will more than likely return humiliated. People will be talking about her because not everyone went to Moab. Very few went to Moab. So people will be like, Why'd you do that? Look what it got you. It got you absolutely nothing. You're hopeless. Verse eight. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go turn back each of you to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security. Each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, no, instead, we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Go. I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters, this is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. So as they set out, Naomi begins to realize the situation at hand. Not only is she in a really bad spot, but she is leading her daughters-in-law into a hopeless situation. Her daughter-in-law's have a bleak situation in front of them, not any better than Naomi. And you could probably argue that if they were to go with her to Israel, it's an even more bleak situation than Naomi's. They have no husbands, they have no kids. And in that day and age, if you haven't had kids after 10 years, who's blamed, even though it could be either party? Who's blamed? The woman was blamed, always. 
And so they are marked as being not able to bear children. They would be foreigners in a foreign land speaking a foreign language. Two Moabite women who in a very real way represent all that has gone wrong for Naomi might be the only hope that she has. In fact, they are trying to provide her with this alternative view of being family. The deaths of their husbands had freed them from the legal obligation that they had to their mother-in-law. But they are willing to leave their own country to care for her. But Naomi doesn't want to drag them down with her. She feels cursed by God. And instead of taking the chance to see how these women's fate will turn out by going with her to Israel, she preemptively tells them to get away from her. She says, you are better off staying here. And just see what happens. At least you have family here. And then the story unfolds to this beautiful scene in verse 9 of Naomi saying goodbye, trying to push Orpah and Ruth away, tears streaming down all of their faces. And Orpah and Ruth say, no, we are going to stay with you. We want to go with you and help you. But Naomi's saying, no, because God is against me. Have you ever felt that hopeless? Have you ever felt that God is against you in some way? I know I have. Naomi had allowed her circumstances to control her and then felt like she had to deal with them on her own. She thought that she was alone, that God wasn't there, that God didn't care, that God didn't see her. Sometimes when I feel like this, all I can see are my circumstances and then maybe people around me are wanting to help me, but what do I do? I isolate myself because I don't want help. I just want to wallow in my self-pity. And in my grief. And then what happens is I blame either myself or I, I blame God for the, the situation that I'm in. And I believe that it's religion that teaches us to do that. Religion teaches us that when things get complicated or painful, well, first of all, religion teaches us that we shouldn't experience things that are complicated or painful or hurtful. But then when we do experience those things that are painful, hurtful, and, and, and uncomfortable and, and sorrowful, what do we do? Well, if we've been following all of the moral things that we're supposed to follow, we blame God. If we haven't been following the moral things, then we blame ourselves. And we wallow in self-pity and the situation becomes the exact opposite of life. When I'm struggling with my, with my life, I'm someone who has a hard time letting other people in. When I was 13 years old, my brother died of cancer. And I learned at that age, or at least I taught myself at that age, to keep everything inside and to not let other people in, that I would take care of it myself and that I didn't want to burden other people with my problems. And so people would ask me, how are you doing, Joel? They wanted me to talk and then I wouldn't talk at all. And so I taught myself when things get hard, I stay, I, I keep in things internal and I don't let other people in. And I wallow in my self-pity and I ask God, God, why are you doing this to me? But I don't let anyone else in. Even though those people might be offering hope, I turn them away. I can relate to Naomi on some level, and maybe you can too, where you feel lost. You feel like you're in a foreign land and there's no one who gets you. There's no one there to fight for you. And you become consumed with your circumstances. You might even begin to believe that God is out to get you or that God is against you in some way and there's no hope. And when we get like in a place like this, any form of hope that does come along, we push it away. Because we can't see, we get blinded by our circumstances. In our minds, we have an idea of what hope should look like. And if it doesn't look like that, then in our minds, we're like, no, that can't be hope. And so we move away from it. 
Maybe Naomi was thinking to herself, how are two Moabite women going to help me? What can they provide an old childless widow like me? Verse 14 through 18, these are the final verses of our text this morning. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more so, even if death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So Orpah decides to heed her mother-in-law's advice and go back to Moab. Ruth doesn't. While Naomi seems to be lost and hopeless and confused and controlled by her circumstances or blind by her circumstances, angry at her God, who she believes has put her in this mess in the first place, Ruth seems to be the exact opposite in this situation. She seems to be clear and focused and hopeful and committed in an astonishing way. She sacrifices her so-called life to cling to an aged, hopeless, desperate mother-in-law. She abandons the sensible in order to embrace and venture into the unknown because she believes life to be found there. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Something in the New Testament, Jesus, the incarnation, God choosing to put on human flesh and abandoned the sensible in order to embrace the chaos so that humanity, so that we who have become blind to the presence of God can open our eyes and see that God is committed to us more than we can ever imagine. I had this intern last year who I would drive into front porch and we have these two dumpsters that every time you drive into front porch, you have to pass. It's where all the trash goes for front porch as well as uh, one of the apartment complex by us. And as I drove by on numerous occasions, I would see my intern kind of circling the um, the dumpsters. And then on some occasions, I would see her inside the dumpsters. And it just really grossed me out. Um, I, I am a germ freak. I, I don't like dirty things very much. And, and to see her even near the dumpsters, let alone inside one, just grossed me out. Um, then I would be walking through front porch on some occasions. And I know front porch like the back of my hand, where I know if something is in there that, that shouldn't be. Um, and, and I would see things in there, these little um, figurines or sculptures or books or, or pillows or a chair. And, and I'd say, Carolyn, wh- do you know where this came from? So oh, yeah, I got it out of the dumpster. And I'd be, no, please do not tell me you got it out of the dumpster. Nothing good can come out of the dumpster. But see, Carolyn's perspective was that there were things good that could come out of the dumpster. And I think in life, we think that there's only certain places that hope can come from. Naomi couldn't see Ruth as hope because Ruth was a Moabite woman. But for Naomi, that hope was coming from the least likely of places. It was coming from this Moabite woman, a woman from the wrong tribe who wanted to be family with her. And Ruth was begging her to be a part of Naomi's life. And all Naomi could do was push her away. Thank goodness for Ruth's persistence in Naomi's life. Thank goodness for God's persistence in our lives. I believe it is then in this unwavering commitment of Ruth to Naomi that is the other challenge of the text to all of us this morning. Whether we are already filled with hope or whether we are sitting here this morning in a completely hopeless situation, 
Ruth was just as desperate and, tra- and, and in as a tragic situation as Naomi was. Like I said earlier, probably even more tragic. Yet what does she do in the midst of her hopelessness? She commits to someone else who is hopeless. Everything around her, culturally, religiously, socioeconomically, pointed Ruth to separating herself from this elderly Israelite woman named Naomi and go back to Moab. But what does she do? She doesn't make excuses. She instead commits herself to another person who's in need. She doesn't wallow in her self-pity, but she provides hope for someone else who is hopeless, sacrificing her own well-being for the well-being of another. Ruth commits herself to Naomi in the midst of Naomi, thinking that God is out to get her. God then shows faithfulness to Naomi through the faithfulness of someone else named Ruth. The world around us is ever increasingly trying to convince us that we must take care of ourselves and put ourselves in the best possible situation to succeed, to live, to experience the abundance of life. And the world tells us that's one thing, but God says, and Jesus says, that's something completely different. What does that look like from the world's perspective? Money, wealth, a a nice home, nice family, being incredibly happy all the time. And when we do that, when we achieve that, then we'll truly be living. But Ruth does the exact opposite. She commits herself to someone who is hopeless and believes that that is the way forward. The beginning of the story of Ruth teaches us to stop allowing our circumstances to define what life looks like and instead recognize hope in unexpected places and then to go out and be hope for those whom all hope has vanished. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it's all about. To open our eyes both to receive hope, blessing, and generosity and to be a people who give hope, blessing, and generosity. The Pope, as you all, I'm sure, are well aware, uh, as our media made us well aware of, came to the United States not too long ago. And before the Pope came to the United States, he said this, and I just want to close with this quote. He said, if somebody has a room in his house which is closed for long periods, it develops humidity and a bad smell. If a church, a parish, a diocese, or an institute lives closed in on itself, it grows ill, and we are left with a scrawny church with strict rules and no creativity. On the contrary, if that church goes forth, if a church and a parish go out into the world, then once outside, they might suffer the same fate as anybody else who goes out, have an accident. Well, in that case, between a sick and a bruised church, I prefer the bruised because at least it went out into the street. Let us be a church that goes out into the street to be hope for those whom all hope is lost. Amen. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Ruth and these challenging words and these hopeful words. God, thank you for providing hope to us because we are all hopeless and yet you are a God that continually provides hope for us. Now, may we be a people who go out into the world, even in the midst of our hopelessness, and provide hope for those who are hopeless. Amen.